I am incredibly thrilled and honored to have Dr. Raleigh Washington here with us today. Um, yes. I would, I would say that uh, uh, he's a dear brother, but I feel like that would be disrespectful or dishonoring because I really would consider him more a dear father. As I just said that, you know, there are many teachers but few fathers. I consider Dr. Washington to be a father, not just a father in the faith, but a father in my life. Um, he, I, I, I know more about him than he knows about me, but that's only because I've been listening to him and following him for a, a long time. And I'll tell you this, I've, I've seen this man speak, even in this city, before tens of thousands. I've seen him speak in a boardroom uh, uh, with just a few, and I've sat across a, a, a table at a meal with him where just he and I, and I don't see any difference. Um, he's a man with integrity, and he's a man who, is, uh, who has seen a lot in his decades. I'm not going to say how many it is. I'll let him t tell you if he wants to tell you that. Uh, he and Mrs. Washington now live here in Jacksonville. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and that's a, that's a long story as well, but I will tell you this much. Mrs. Washington told me this morning, it's because the Lord spoke into her life that that happened. Uh, and that's a powerful, powerful story. Um, Dr. Washington was born here in Jacksonville. Um, and his life has taken him a lot of places, including Vietnam, as a, as a, as a decorated veteran. And we, we thank you, sir, for your service there. Uh, he came to know the Lord, I think, before he headed over overseas and... Uh, came back and, and found, found himself in ministry in Chicago in a church that was, I don't know if it's split down the middle in terms of numbers, but it was, you know, mixed race church. We're, and they, they, he tells me that one of their favorite things to do is what they called fudge ripple Sundays, where they'd get the white people and talk about the issues, get the black people talk about the issues, and then they'd mix it together and answer questions. And, uh, uh, and so he's been doing this, this thing about you know, seeing the races come together in our country for a long, long time. And that is incredibly important to me, uh, not because I'm an expert on this at all, but I'm old enough to have grown up in, in South Florida during a time where I've seen things in my life that I, I'm still, I, I feel shame even about things that I've seen, that I've seen uh, people that look like me that have done to people that look like Dr. Washington. And uh, I wish I could tell you that I believed in my heart that those days are gone. I do not believe that those days are gone. I believe they still exist. I think things have gotten better in some ways, but I don't think they're done. And we need, as a church, um, to do better. The church should be the best at, at modeling relationships that do not value people uh, for, the, for the color of their skin, but for the content of their character. We should be the best at it, and we're not. And... Uh, it's for that reason that I knew a few, you know, a little while back when I was at a meeting with Dr. Washington that I was like, if there's any way you could come speak in our church, I want you to, um, for a variety of reasons. And I don't know what the Lord's desire is for every church. I don't even know what his exact desire is for our church, but I know this. Our church does not, at this point, adequately reflect the community around us. And, uh, and we need to do better. And so... I think the starting place of that is learning how to, li to, to live in relationships with one another, even in places where we don't understand or we have disagreements or whatever they may be. And so I want to pray. I'm done with my talking because I want Dr. Washington to come up here. You're going to take as long as you want. We've got nowhere to be. And wherever we go for lunch afterwards, we'll still be serving food when we go there. So, Jesus, we thank you for this dear man. We thank you for mothers and fathers in the faith who have who have loved you and walked with you a very long time. Father, I pray that every person in this room, whether they're a fourth grader or whether they're in well beyond fourth grade, <laughs> would uh, have their hearts opened, that they would just clear out all the, the cobwebs in their mind and they would get focused. Um, I pray that you, Jesus, would speak to us with, with clarity and with grace-filled thunder. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would uh, call us to yourself. We thank you, Father, for Dr. Washington's life, for his marriage, for his family. We thank you for the work that he's doing even in his family. Father, that you've called his family here.
We ask that you would bless the work of his hands, the love of his life, and bless him now as he comes forward to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Please welcome Dr. Raleigh Washington. Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. I'm a, it's a joy for me to be here. And a joy to be here on this uh, special Veterans Day. Before I get started with my message, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the road to Jerusalem. I appreciate what Pastor Jeff said because he really set it up very, very clear. Uh, but uh, Paulette, my wife, is here. This is my wife, Paulette. She is the joy of my life. She is... She's my rib, prime rib. Uh, uh, I also have a a riblet here. Uh, 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 Petra, my daughter, is here, and her husband, Gary, uh, with my uh, two grandkids, uh, Devorah uh, and Isaac, and uh, my brother is here as well, Jermaine and his wife, Chanel. So... So glad to have them here as well. I thought I'd bring me some uh, help here. <laughs> but I'm going to ask Petra to come forth right now. Petra is kind of serving as the vice president of the Road to Jerusalem. I'm going to let her uh, tell you what Road to Jerusalem is all about. Uh, my riblet daughter, Petra. All right, praise the Lord, everybody. I just got to say to you, Pastor Henderson, You know, I truly believe that attitude reflects leadership. And when you immediately walk into a church, you know, the pastor sets the tone for the atmosphere and the environment. And I just felt like I was at home. I felt like I was in the Lord's living room this morning. I kicked off my shoes for a minute. I said, wait a minute, let me put them back on now. I'm a guest. I'm a guest. I got to wait till my second visit before I can take my shoes off. But, I mean, everybody was just so welcoming. and, And it just feels really good to be here. And so my prayer and declaration for your ministry is that God would bring people here that just need to fill a a home in the Lord, people that have church hurt and they've been wounded and people that of all races, all colors, all ages and generations would just come and really flock to this congregation because this is the Lord's living room right here. So God bless you, Pastor. Um, I just want to share with you just for a second. Um, I only have a second or else my dad's going to start giving me the stink eye over there. We don't, we don't want to have a family fight now here in the middle of church. So we're going to need Pastor Henderson to mediate here. But um just going to take a quick second to tell you about the ministry of the road to Jerusalem. And the mission of the road to Jerusalem is to really bring unity between Jewish and non-Jewish believers in the Lord. And I remember 15 years ago when my father and coach Bill McCartney had the vision to launch this ministry. And they told me what they were doing and, you know, Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. And I said, the road to Jerusalem. I said, Dad, have y'all fallen a little bit off the deep end? I said, I know, you know, we, the Bible talks about things in Israel and the Jews, but you got the road to Jerusalem. We've got issues right here in America, in our own backyard we're dealing with. I don't understand what this Jewish, you know, ministry is that you're doing. And, you know, I went to the first event that they did in uh, uh, Palm Springs in California, and I was a college student at the time, and I brought some of my friends with me from school And we just sat there, and I remember sitting in that event, meeting a lot of Messianic Jewish young adults, and just looking at their knowledge and their intimacy with God. And I was was blown away, because here I was in school, uh, getting my degree in Christian ministry, and I felt like I knew a little something, right? I felt like I had some experience. I grew up as a PK. I knew some stuff about the Lord. But when I sat there looking at them, it was like, I was, I was in awe. I was dumbfounded because I said, they've got something a little bit extra that I'm missing. What is that, Lord? What is that? And right then and there, God began to reveal to me that we as his children understand him and his divinity, right? What he did on the cross, the miracles that he performed. But we miss out on his humanity. And I immediately began studying the word and I realized Jesus was on this earth for 33 years, 33 years, but he didn't start his ministry. John didn't baptize him. He didn't do his first miracle until he was 30 years old. And I said, wait a minute, Lord. So that means you spent three years 
accomplishing everything we spend most of our time learning about in church. What in the world did you do for 30 years of your life? He lived as a Jewish man. He celebrated Passover. He celebrated the Feast of Sukkot and Feast of Tabernacles. He celebrated Purim. And I, I said, what? I don't even know what those feasts are. I have no idea what the Jewish roots of my faith are. And God said, Petra, you want to be intimate with me. You're passionate about intimacy, but you don't fully know me. You don't know me. And so immediately I went from, Dad, what are you and Coach doing to, oh, my goodness, I've got it wrong. I, Dad, I need to know everything you're doing about this and, and really began my own journey and my own pursuit of understanding the ministry of the road to Jerusalem, which is about telling the church, hey, guys, we got Jewish roots in our faith. And understanding these Jewish roots is first important because it allows us to be more intimate with the Father. And then second, we've got Messianic brothers and sisters who are still being persecuted, not just in Israel, but here in the U.S. We've got Messianic brothers and sisters who are being neglected by the church because they're too Jewish and neglected by the Jews because they're calling themselves believers. And they need us. And when we stand as one, this has biblical, prophetic implications to it. And so without digging in, because see, he's starting to, you know, he's moving a little closer to me. He's scooting a little closer. <laughs> but without digging in and going too deep, because see, he gave it to me. It's his fault. So if I go a little over, it's because of him. That is the heart of the ministry of the road to Jerusalem. And we do events. We do a tour to Israel. We take pastors and we connect them and, and other parachurch uh, ministry leaders to leaders in Israel. And we help them have that relationship so that we as the body of believers can be living out what the Lord's prayer was in John 17, which was oneness between Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And so the road to Jerusalem, we're trying to expose these Jewish roots. We're trying to reconcile and we're trying to educate and connect everybody about this way to get more intimate with the father and to stand with our messianic brothers and sisters. So I'm, I'm done. I'm going to hand them on. Well, maybe, maybe, no, I'm just playing. I'm done. And uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. church uh, in Colorado when I was preaching and uh, so when I wasn't there, Petra would preach and uh, after she preached they told me, Pastor, you don't have to wait until you go away for Petra to preach. <laughs> you can see why. She is definitely representing the future. We do want to see Jew and Gentile. We want to see pastors who are not Jewish connect with Jewish pastors in Israel so that they can enhance reaching out to the Jewish community. There are 35, 40,000 Jewish believers in Israel, six and a half million Jews in Israel, a fraction of 1%. And uh, we need to see that difference happen. And if we get pastors to hook up with them, it will make a difference. So that's what we're doing. Thank you so much, Petra. Father, I pray that now you would indeed... Speak in me and through me and let me decrease in the humanness of who I am so that you might increase in the power of your spirit in and through me. Speak to these thy people. Speak to them. Touch them in a very special way. God would be pleased then to give you all of the praise and all of the glory. We pray this in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. What's your music minister's name? Brian? Uh, the Lord spoke to Brian because the Lord wanted him to know that I was coming here today to speak. That's why he did. I'm trading my sorrows <laughs> and my shame. So I, that was a blessing. really made me feel very much at home. I, my message is beyond bitterness. Genuine relationship, especially relationships across racial lines, happens when we get beyond bitterness. Why? Because most everybody carries stuff, baggage, things that will get in the way of relationships that God wants us to have, especially across racial lines. So today I'm going to be dealing with getting beyond bitterness. And you'll hear a part of my 
military testimony, which I think is quite fitting on this particular Veterans Day. I'm reminded uh, of traveling uh, in the Caribbean. I, this is about more than 30 years ago, and I heard a song in the Caribbean about 30 years ago, and I've been five, four, five times in the Caribbean since then, and every time I've gone, I've heard this song. It's kind of like maybe a theme song within the Caribbean, and it's called Shame and Scandal in the Family. Now, I, I wish I could sing, but because I don't. My wife sings, my daughter sings, but I, it's not part of me. But I'll tell you how the song goes. It says there was a young man uh, who saw a pretty girl. He fell in love with this pretty girl, asked her to marry him. She said yes. He was very, very happy. And he saw his dad. He said, Dad, I saw a pretty girl, fell in love, and she asked her to marry. She said yes. And the dad asked him, what's her name? When he told the dad the name, the dad said, no, son, no. That girl is your sister, but your mama don't know. Then the verse goes, woe is me. Shame and scandal in the family. Then the verse goes on. A little boy was walking and had a very sad face. And his mother said, why are you so sad, son? He said, well, I saw a pretty girl. I fell in love. I asked her to marry. She said, yes. Then I told dad that I saw a pretty girl ask her to marry. He asked me her name. When I told dad her name, he said, no, son, no. That girl is your sister, but your mama don't know. And the mother reared back with a bellowing laugh and said, don't worry, son. Go, son, go, because your daddy ain't your daddy, but your daddy don't know. <laughs> Woe is me. Shame and scandal in the family. I say that because we have shame and scandal in the United States of America. Shame and scandal really in our world. Shame and scandal even within the confines of the body of Christ. And that shame and scandal comes because we don't know how to get along with one another. Division is greater than I think it has ever been in our nation. There's always divisiveness in politics, but in the past couple of years, that division has gone off the charts. Uh, there is division within our families, division within our churches. And I believe that division happens more than any other reason because of issues that are unresolved in the lives of people. Division causes anger, hatred, and it results in woundedness. And those woundedness affects our mind and somehow gets hidden in the corners of our mind. And all of a sudden, it'll cause things to blow up, even without warning, resulting in bitterness. We get wounded. Then there's anger. And if it's not effectively dealt with, it results in bitterness. Let me define bitterness for you. Bitterness is odorless, tasteless, colorless. It's invisible. But bitterness will destroy your joy, it'll destroy your ministry, it'll destroy your marriage, it destroys the family, it'll destroy the church, and ultimately will destroy you. But here's something to know about bitterness. Bitterness is not what somebody else has done to you. Bitterness is what you do to yourself because you've been wounded by someone else. The issue is we need to get beyond bitterness. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever done you wrong and it has not been reconciled in your family, in your church, in, your, in the school, at your work. Not just in the past year, but can you think of anything that's happened, even in your past, that's yet unreconciled in your life because it never got straight? If you can think of anything, if anything came to your mind as I asked that question, then you have seeds of bitterness, that can result in 
that which will destroy your life certainly will get in front of developing relationships that God wants us to have. What I want to do is give you three biblical antidotes for overcoming bitterness. And in so doing, I'm going to share a bit of my military case that uh, really plays very much uh, into that dynamic. I served in the military, and I did exceedingly well. Went to Florida A&M, graduated with a degree in psychology, and a commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Army. It happened probably before 90% of you were born. I graduated from Florida A&M, 1960. I went into the military. I did well in the military. Got promoted to first lieutenant, captain, major, then lieutenant colonel. Moving really ahead of my contemporaries. Uh, when I was in the military, I, I went to the command and general staff college at Leavenworth. Only 50% of the majors, and I'm going somewhere with this, uh, get, gets to go to the command and general staff college. I was selected in my first year of eligibility to go to Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Only 5% of all lieutenant colonels are selected. Man, I was on my way. I commanded a battalion, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, home of the Airborne. In two years, that battalion was number one on the base. Then I went on to command the San Juan District Recruiting Command, uh, and in nine months, it was the number one recruiting command throughout the United States Army. Man, I was doing well. I was what they call a water walker. But a conspiracy ensued almost totally with folks of the lighter hue. When I say lighter hue, that means white folks. <laughs> I just want to get here. Please understand something. It's not about guilt. Simply understanding. Uh, a conspiracy could one colonel, full colonel, said, if you don't stop Raleigh Washington, he will be the first black general in the adjutant general's corps. And I was on that path. But the then... Lies came, multiple lies after lies, all untrue. Even had the criminal, uh, the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, investigate those lies, found that they were unfounded, but it continued. They said, where there's smoke, there's fire. Continued to go after me. I ended up before what's called a show cause board. I had to show cause why I should still remain in the military. Two weeks of that, they still found nothing that was validated, but subjectively concluded that I was guilty of conduct on becoming an officer. I was in the administrative branch. There are four separate set of criteria that must be present in the record to prove that an officer is guilty of conduct unbecoming. None of the four was there, but yet they subjectively came up with that conclusion. So to make things right, they offered me a retirement in lieu of, of being discharged. I would get my retirement, my benefits, but I'd have that stamp that said, hey, they caught me doing something wrong and let me off the hook. Paulette and I had become believers two weeks apart from each other one year prior to what that took place. So I got saved right before I got out of the military, about a year before I got the military, Pastor. Uh, we learned as new believers, know ye that the truth will set you free. We told the truth, but the army set us free. <laughs> My wife and I talking, she said, honey, don't take a tainted retirement. We are not guilty of those accusations and don't take a tainted retirement. She freed me up to do exactly what, so I refused the tainted retirement. What happened? After serving 19 years, 11 months, and 29 days, one day short of 20 years, which is mandatory retirement, I was discharged from the Army under other than honorable conditions. Why? Because of lies, because of envy, because of jealousy, even probably a little racism that was involved. The question, my brothers and sisters, is how could I deal with this and not become bitter? I didn't become bitter. Uh, we became better. Our first thought was they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We simply went on a sojourn. Uh, I got out of the military went into the seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Deerfield, Illinois, right outside of Chicago.
got a master's divinity, planted a church in Chicago, and my focus was winning souls, winning souls, winning souls, winning souls. That's precisely what I, what I did. So the issue is what made a difference? If you turn to the book of Philippians in chapter 3, I'm going to unveil for you, for you three antidotes to overcoming bitterness. Can I tell you what? Bitterness does not knock on your door once and then go away. It comes back again and again and again. But if you understand these three antidotes, you will overcome bitterness, have joy in your life, and you will make a wonderful person to have a relationship with, yea, even across racial lines. Antidote number one from Philippians chapter 3 is what I call beware of dogs. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Verse 2, beware of dogs. It's in the Bible. Like I said, beware of dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Paul is not talking about four-legged dogs with a tail. He's talking about two-legged people with doggy-like attitudes. Uh, dogs, and notice what it says there. Uh, beware of evil workers, the false circumcision, dogs. They're all the very same thing. Basically, Paul would preach salvation by grace through faith. They said, no, no, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to be uh, 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 changed and become Jewish. No, Paul would say, no, 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 it is Salvation comes by faith through grace. No, no, they would dog his trail. See, they were attacking him with words because words are powerful. They were attacking his mind. They were trying to make a difference. See, you've got to be aware of people who will use words to try to cause you to have an attitude. The word beware in Scripture Simply means don't burn yourself up with your own anger. It's the same as in the Old Testament, Psalm 37, fret not thyself because of evil doers. These are not wicked, envious against the workers of iniquity. So Paul is saying, beware of dogs. Beware of people who have evil intention that will attack you with words. You know, that sort of reminds me of uh, my daughter, Rachel. Daughter Rachel, she was now five years old and in kindergarten. And so it was in, kindergarten was in a Christian school and a church. And I'd take her someday, my wife would. So I, uh, this is my day to take Rachel. And I had on my pants and I had on a T-shirt. And we were getting ready to go. And I walked in the room and kind of flexed my muscles and chest. And I said, Rachel, I want you to come here. Say, touch this right here, darling. Touch this, touch it. She touched it. I said, you know what that is, Rachel? She said, no, Daddy. I said, real steel. <laughs> I said, your daddy is a man. I said, he's strong. I, Rachel, can you see it? Rachel said, oh, Daddy, you look strong. I said, yeah, I am strong, Rachel. We got in the car. We drove there. They had two huge doors, right, for the school. Rachel said, Daddy, those are big doors. Could you knock down those doors? I said, Rachel, with one blow. Daddy can knock down that door. She said, oh, Daddy, you're the strongest man in the world. Rachel, you got that right. Remember that, darling. What is your daddy? She said, the strongest man in the world. I said, great. So I left at school. Uh, dropped off, went to work. About two and a half hours at work, the phone rang. It was my wife. She said, hey, Mr. Strongman. I said, yeah. Say you have to go pick up your daughter. I said, what do you mean? Say, she has been suspended. I said, you can't suspend a girl in kindergarten. Say, she is in the principal's office, and they're waiting for you. I said, well, what happened? Well, it was time for her to lay her head down and take a nap. She told the teacher, I don't want to take a nap. The teacher said, Rachel, don't talk back to me. Lay down. She said, 
I'll talk back to you, and you can't do anything about it. And if you come at me, I'll call my dad. He's the strongest man in the world. He knocked those doors down, and he'll knock you down too. <laughs> so I had to eat humble pie, and I went and picked up Rachel and, and went to the school and say, uh, teach her how to say forgiveness. And I said forgiveness, and to get her back in school. Can I tell you the moral of the story? Proverbs 18.12 says this. Death and life is in the power of the tongue. I spoke into Rachel's mind the words that her daddy was the strongest man in the world. She believed it and she acted on it and responded. You got to be careful what you say. Paul says beware of people who have doggy-like attitudes that will speak evil things to your mind. It will cause an attitude and it can mess you up. Antidote number two. Beware of placing that which is temporal in front of that which is eternal. Beware of putting the temporal in front of the eternal. It begins in verse 3. It says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. When Paul says, uh, he's saying here to the Judaizers, everything you have, I have more. Every qualification you have, I have more. Everything you've achieved, I have more. But then goes on, listen to what he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost and views as a passing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I use the New American Standard, but that particular verse, I like King James. You know what it says? It calls it not rubbish. It calls it dung. Sounds like a better word for fleshly, temporary things that we sort of put our emphasis in. Temporal things. Don't put temporal things in front of the eternal. What kind of temporal things are, are you dealing with that you might put in front? Uh, it's that new Toyota truck. Or, or, or that, it's that new riding lawnmower. Or it's that new iPhone 10. Young men, young men, they kind of glory in their body. You know how I was talking, Rachel, strongest man. Young men, they, they, they pump iron. They puff up. They get a barrel chest. Wear tight T-shirts, man. That's it. Can I tell you what? The new truck will rust. The riding lawnmower will break down. The iPhone will be obsolete in one year. And the barrel chest, when you get my age, falls down into the stomach never to return again. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Only that which is done for Christ will last. Beware of the temporal stuff. What is the eternal it begins in verse 9, verse 9 and 10. It says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10 is key. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. The eternal, to know Jesus Christ, to know him as Savior and Lord, to know him in the pardoning of your sins, to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sovereign, because you've been conformed to his death. 
me just pause now. That's key. The eternal is a personal, unmistakable relationship with Jesus Christ. How does that look like? That just may be one person here who's not yet put their arms around it. Let me describe it for you. It means that you've come to the point when you realize that you are a sinner. You were born that way. Live perhaps a sinful life. Then you've come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who went to the cross, died for you. Not only did he die, but he took all of your sins, past, present, and future upon himself, buried in the grave, and he rose on the third day. And all you have to do now is acknowledge who you are, confess that. When you confess your sins, he is faithful, just, and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Open your heart and say, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross, rose on the third day. Right now, I'm opening my heart, asking you, Jesus, come in to my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And I'll love you for the rest of my days. If you haven't done that, guess what? Today's your day. Uh, because that is the eternal to know him. How do you put the eternal? You know, when is the last time you have experienced resurrection power in your life? When is the last time you have prayed for somebody who was sick, laid hands, and they got well? When is the last time you have shared the gospel with a person who didn't know Jesus, dead in his or her sins, and they prayed with you and they became alive because you did it? If you've not experienced that recently, maybe, maybe you forgot the formula. Uh, you can't get to the resurrection power until you get uh, conformed to his suffering and know that that's the first step, the power of the resurrection. You know, when I think of the power of the resurrection, I think of what I love to intimately call the little old ladies in the church. Man, I, I, I remember Mother Montgomery. Blessed Mother Montgomery, man. She's in her 80s, memorized scripture, man, taught Sunday school. And if you didn't do right, she read that finger like that, and you know exactly what you needed to do. Well, this is the story of a little old lady who loved Jesus, who memorized scripture. But she had a neighbor next door who was an atheist who didn't believe that God exists. And this neighbor next door Dislike, he almost hated this lady because she always had the joy of the Lord and always talking about this God that did not exist. And he hated this little old lady. One day the little old lady ran out of food, so she was in her room. The window was up, and she was praying, Lord God, your servant has no food. Send food to your servant. The atheist was outside her window cutting his hedges, and he heard this lady praying to this God that did not exist. He said, ah, my chance. I'm going to prove to her that there is no God. Dropped his hedge clippers, jumped in his pickup truck, went to the store, got four bags of groceries, bought them back, put it on the front door, rang the buzzer, hid behind the hedges. You know, the little lady got up, opened the door. She saw four bags of groceries, and she says, God did it. He raised up behind and says, no, no, God didn't do it. <laughs> There is no God. I did it. She says, no, 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 God did it. He said, no, 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 I did it. She pushed him aside, ran into our town. She said, God did it. He was behind and said, I did it. She says, God did it. He said, I did it. He couldn't stand it. He grabbed a little lady, turned around, said, why do you keep saying God did it? I can prove I did it. I have a receipt. I can take you to the store. I know what's in every bag. Why do you keep saying God did it? She looked at him in the eye and said, not only did God do it, but he had the devil pay the bill. The little old lady had things in the right order. She had the eternal in the right place. Beware of dogs. Beware of placing the temporal in front of the eternal and make sure that you are gripped with the eternal. Let's take it home with the third antidote. The third antidote says this. Beware of allowing pain of the past to interfere with your present or your future. Let me say that again now. Beware 
of allowing pain of the past to interfere with your present or your future. How you do that? It now comes clear in beginning in verse 12. Here's how it reads. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, may I add sister into? Brethren, sister, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beware of allowing that pain in your past because somebody did something wrong with you. They did me wrong. They did me wrong. You can't get it out your mind. Every time you think about it, you're dragging it. And the more you drag it, the more it collects and the worse it gets. It's messing up your present and your future. You have to learn how to forget what lies behind. The Bible says this. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and look back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So we can't look back. We have to forget what lies behind. How do we do that? Uh, we have to focus on what is right in your life. Probably the greatest dynamic of how to take the steps to do that is this. Make sure that you know Jesus Christ. Make sure that you grasp the, ter- the, the eternal Then in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you now, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies, mind, soul, and body, as a holy and living sacrifice unto God, which is only your reasonable spiritual service. But do not be confused formed to this world and all of its divisive things, but rather be transformed, this is the key, how? By the renewing of your mind. And how do you renew your mind? It's with the Word. It's reading the Word. It's meditating on the Word. It's memorizing the Word of God. And you do that, Not once or twice, but each and every day you renew your mind. That's how you can have the right focus. That's how you can get things out of the corner of your mind. The Bible says in in this same book of Philippians, you know, Philippians is an attitude book. Uh, The Greek word for neo, which means mind, attitude, have this mind in yourself. That word for neo is used in the New Testament 29 times. But 11 of the 29 times is in this little book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. Uh, uh, but everything with prayer and supplications. Let your request be known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Then it says, finally, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, Whatever is honest, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, hear that word, let your mind dwell on these things. That's the focus, and that's how we get it done. Well, I got the military planning a church on the west side of Chicago, the mixed-race church. Man, we were really doing things, but my focus was winning souls and winning souls. And the second focus was of the church was reconciling uh, across racial lines. But that was our focus, and that's what we were doing. Then I got into an accident uh, and uh, had a compound fracture and called up and a Jewish lawyer by the name of Jeff Strange. I didn't know him. I got to know him. And I was doing a deposition because of the accident and all that was transpiring. Then all of a sudden I realized as I was talking to him with this deposition, uh, I said, this is a Jewish lawyer. 
And I'm going to tell this Jewish lawyer about a Jewish carpenter that I know. And next thing I know, I had told him all about the military case. And Jeff said, Raleigh, that's not fair. What they've done to you is wrong. Jeff, I said, I know it. He says, I know nothing about this area of law, but we got to do something. I said, well, Jeff, I don't have any money. He said, I didn't ask for any money. We have to do something. Jeff took my case on a pro bono basis, didn't charge me anything. And Jeff methodically learned, figured out bit by bit how to challenge the military. And he did it for nine years. And at the end of nine years, he caused the army to say, Uncle, they reversed themselves, called me back to active duty to serve one day so that I might retire. <laughs> I remember that day really well. I said, hey, I, I get to go back in the military. I get to wear the military uniform. I had to fast two weeks before I could get back into that boy, boy. Huh? I, I got the military uniform on that day. We're getting ready to go back. I put on the uniform. I got on my cap and all of the braid. You know, we call it scramble egg. I'm ready to go. And Pa K. Ryan, who was the father of Glenn K. Ryan, who was my partner in ministry, he called me and said, Pastor, how are you going to the base? I said, I'm going to drive. He said, no, I'm going to drive you. He worked part-time in a funeral home in Wheaton, Illinois. He came to pick me up in a limousine. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh. I got into the back of the limousine. We were driving to the military base. And when we got near, I saw uh, uh, the military policeman come to attention and salute an officer in the car in front of me. I said, oh, they got to do that to me one more again. Huh? I said, Parquet Ryan, when we pull up there and that military policeman sees all these brazing, he comes to attention don't drive off. It's been nine years. God ought to give me 30 seconds of carnal joy. <laughs> uh, sure enough, man, he came to attention like that, and he held it, and I just made him hold it for a while. <laughs> Can I tell you, I enjoyed every second of it. And then I returned his salute and said, carry on. And I said, Lord, please forgive me for that. Hey, we had an unbelievable time. The same military base, Fort Sheridan, Illinois, that drummed me out of the army, had the roll out of band, put me back to the army. My family was there. The church members was there. The seminary professors was there. It was a grand day. We had a grand parade, a grand uh, retirement ball. It was marvelous. But that's not the end of it. Jeff hooked up with a lawyer by the name of Mike Gaffney in um, Washington, D.C., who understood this law, and they challenged the military. So they not, they not only uh, retired me, but now they gave me retroactive retirement pay for the full nine years. That's not all. <laughs> they expunged my records. All of the lies that was there zapped nothing today. In Washington, D.C., my record is an immaculate record without spot or blemish. Who else could do that but a holy God who responds to people who really love him in spirit and in truth? That's the dynamic. Well, brothers, what would have happened? What would have happened if I had become bitter? I wouldn't be standing before you now. I want to bring it to a close. Three antidotes. Beware of dogs. People with dog-like attitudes. Beware of placing the temporal in front of the eternal. Thirdly, beware of placing or allowing the pain of your past to interfere with your present or your future. And how are we going to do that? I want to tell you a brief story. Thank you. This involves my wife, and I do it with her permission. Because I just told you a military story, and I know the men really get into that. Of course, the military ladies, too. My wife... had a wound that I didn't know anything about. 
And for more than 20 years, she sort of covered that wound. I thought I had the greatest wife in the whole wide world. You know why? She only wanted to do what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd say, honey, it's Friday, let's go. She said, no, well, what do you, you want to do? And I would mention something. She said, yeah. She was on it. Now, who can have a wife that never wants to do anything but what you want to do? Duh, I didn't get it. One day, the kids were gone, and we were home, uh, and nobody was there. And uh, uh, I said, hey, hey, honey, let's have a little QT. You know what? My concept, like most guys of QT, Saturday morning, Keep on my pajamas. <laughs> Got the bear in my, what's the bear? That thing that you look at the TV and you click it back and forth. So that's what I was doing. Paulette, time of QT, she just was convinced I was going to take her out to breakfast. And so she came down. I said, honey, you head to the kitchen. Bring me some mocha back. 30 minutes later, she came back with the mocha. I said, honey, it's been 30 minutes, sir. Uh, what, what took you all that time? She said, you didn't want to have any time with me. I said, uh-oh. This is 45 minutes before we can get this done. But God, the Holy Spirit, gave me sensitivity. And I said, Paulette, help me understand. Why are you overreacting? When I said that, she just started sobbing. She said, I can still see those skirts. I know what she meant when she said that. I know exactly what she meant. When she was five years old, her mother and father separated. She didn't know any better. She had a sister three years older. Her sister stayed with her father in Spring Lake, North Carolina, and she went with her mother to Raleigh, North Carolina, where her grandfather was teaching, St. Augustine College. Paula tried, as often as they would visit her sister, they would do that. Fast forward. She's now nine years old. She's visiting Spring Lake with her sister and her dad. And her dad said, Virginia, let me take you to the store to get those three skirts you've been asking for. So they go to the store. The sister's picking out skirts. Paula said, you think daddy will buy me one skirt? Virginia said, sure, Paula, go just ask him. So she went and said, dad, will you buy me one skirt? He turned around and yelled at her, how dare you ask me for anything? Uh, you decided to go with your mom. You ask her. Man, don't ask me. You, if you needed something, you go to her, not come to me. And, and when she heard that, it just pierced her. It was a store. She said, looked like there were only white people in that store. I like they're all looking at her. She went inside. She never said anything. She went back to her sister. And her sister picked out three skirts and said, Ma'am, can you put these three skirts in three boxes? I said, yes. They got three boxes and put them here. Got three skirts. Held the skirt up this way. Hold it once, twice, three times. Put it in the box. Put it away. Next skirt, same thing. Hold it. Put one, two, three. Put it in. That's what she meant when she said she can still see those skirts. It caused a deep pain and wound with her. So I said now, Paulette, you have not forgiven your dad. He's been dead some years, but you got to forgive him. She says, I can't do it. It's too painful. That is so unlike her. So I grabbed her hand. And I said, honey, we got to pray now. I went down on one knee and so I prayed and said, Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit spoke. I said, come on, honey, we got to go. She said, where? I said, we got to go to the shopping center. I hate shopping centers. I hate, that's not my bag. I just hate. Uh, so she said, I said, we, let's go. She said, well, I got to get ready. I said, no, no, no. no. She looked like my Hagee. I looked like Pa Hagee. We got in the car. Huh? We drove to the store. And I said, honey, what was the name of that store? She said, oh, what store? Where, where your sister got those skirts? She said, I think it was a learner shop. And she said, but where are we going? Are we going to Eddie's for breakfast? I said, no. We went to the shopping center. We walked in. And I looked to the left. And the second store on the right, left, to my left at the right was a learner shop. And I grabbed it and I said, she said, what are you doing? I said, Lord, I told me to buy you three skirts. I'm going to buy you three skirts today. 
she teared up. She walked in intruder form. She started looking for the least expensive. I said, no, no, you've got to have the most expensive. And I grabbed, I saw a ple- long pleated skirt flower. I said, you've got to have the best. She picked out three skirts. I said, give them to me. I said, ma'am, I need you to put these three skirts in three boxes. They said, yes. She got three boxes and put them here. Three skirts here. She held it up, folded once, twice, three times, put it in a box. When I saw her doing that, I knew that I was being obedient to the Holy Spirit. She boxed them up. I paid for them. Gave three boxes to Paula. She held them like they were the most precious thing in the world. We went and sat on a bench right in front of the learning shop. I said, Paulette, you now have to forgive your dad. Doesn't matter that he's been dead seven years. I bought those skirts to you on behalf of Jesus Christ our Lord and on behalf of your dad, Paul Jones. He did it out of ignorance. He didn't know what he was doing, and you've got to forgive him. She put her head into my chest and started weeping, and she forgave her dad. Forty years, 40 years of carrying that kind of pain, I re- God used me to release her from a prison by asking her in a sensitive moment when she was now almost exploding, help me understand, why are you reacting? And she told me for the very first time, folks, we have scars Almost all of us deal with scars, but we have to deal with them and release them. I'm going to give you a chance to do that now. Somebody here today is dealing with a wound that needs to be healed. Somebody is probably dealing with a father's wound like Paulette that needs to be healed. Somebody here is dealing with a wound from parents who got divorced and created misery. Somebody here may have been abandoned, even adopted, given up by birth mother, creating a wound. Somebody here may have a wound because You've been abused by somebody who is not the same race as yourself, and you're still carrying that wound. Somebody here today has been a victim of emotional abuse, sexual abuse. And are you aware that almost as many men have been sexually abused as women? You know why you don't know it? Because we as men don't ever talk about it. And that wound interferes with relationships. Somebody here is probably carrying a wound because you've been abused by your boss on your job. You know that boss that had you train his nephew and then promoted the nephew and you remained in that same position. God wants you to release. Pastor, if I could have one God. Right now, the Holy Spirit does not want any person present to leave here still carrying a wound that has been hidden in the corners of your mind that comes out at the wrong time. How do you do it? You have to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, choose, choose by an act of your will to forgive the perpetrator. You have to choose. You're supposed to try to do what you can, do it, but by this time, that's not possible. How do you do that? Like Jesus when he hung on the cross, bleeding and dying, stripes on his back, spikes in his hand and his feet, spear in his side, looking at those people who had done it. And he said, Father, forgive them because they don't have a clue. 
First step is that you must, by an intentional act of your will, forgive the perpetrator. Second step. By an act of your will, you've got to pray for that perpetrator. Can I tell you something? The first time you pray for that scoundrel, you ain't going to mean it. But you keep praying, and you keep praying. And all of a sudden, when you pray and you mean it, guess what the Scripture says? Praying for that person who has despitefully taken advantage of you is like putting hot coals upon their head. Third thing. You got to love them. The perpetrator, you got to love them from the heart. The Bible says, love your enemies. And pray for those who despitefully use you. So it's step one, two, three. Forgive them from the heart. Pray from them with the heart. And then learn to love them from the heart. When you do that, when you do that, you clear the issues from your mind. Then you as a person of the light of hue, be freed up to love me, a brother of the darker hue. And that's what God wants. So can I ask you right now, uh, who here today has had the Holy Spirit put you in touch with something that you need to lay at the foot of the cross? That's true. You know what I'm going to ask you? I don't know how a pastor does it. But he invited me here. I'm a black preacher. And I'm saying, once you get up and come forward now and let us pray for you to release you once and for all of any pain, any wrong, anything that can get in the way of you having joy and that will move you beyond bitterness. So right now, will you come? Will you pray? Won't you come? God bless you. God bless you. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. So much better. Glory to God. Since I lay my Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Down. Glory to God. And I feel better. So much better. Glory to God. Since I lay I'm going to pray a prayer of deliverance for everyone who is here. But I'm going to ask one more time. Uh, if you're sitting here and you think you say, hey, I've already dealt with that. I'm okay. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit, uh, are you truly free? And if your spirit is troubled, it means that you need to be truly, totally free today. As you're here now and I'm going to pray, uh, call the name of the perpetrator. Call that situation out in your heart. God will hear you. First step is forgive from the heart. Here's what Jesus says when he taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Then right after that, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, I don't forgive. So you have to forgive from the heart. So call them name out right now. Place them right, right now, this moment, today, at the foot of the cross. Then let this be the first time that you pray for them. Let this be the first time that you pray for them. And then ask the Holy Spirit to give you his power, so that you can begin to love the perpetrator. 
Our gracious Father, we love you. We praise you. We honor. We glorify your holy and righteous name. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who are at the altar right now. Lord, you, you see the tears. You know the pain. And right now, this day, this hour, this moment, I'm asking you, Lord, set the captives free. I pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus that you would indeed release the brothers and sisters from the circumstance, from the person, from whatever it is, release them right now in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your shed blood. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken all of our sins. Thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us. Now, Lord, we ask collectively on behalf of every person here, that they place this moment, release the situation, release the person totally and completely, once and for all, set the captive free. Deliverance right now. Heal, deliver, release in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, mercy, and goodness.